uh, her brother was mentioning. Uh, this is a continuation from last week. So with regards to our topic, like a, like um, you, we were thinking about an apologetic for biblical marriage. And we said last week, an apologetic is something that is an appeal and a defense of a particular topic. And the topic at hand is biblical marriage. And last week, uh, if you are not here, I would request you to go and listen to the sermon on the website. And what we really looked at last week was biblical marriage as necessary for human flourishing, based on the fact that marriage was founded at creation, that it is indeed something that is given to human beings as a necessary requirement for human flourishing. And God's design for it, for marriage, is the pattern of covenant between husband and wife. The marriage covenant is a paradigm or an emblem of the covenant that God makes with his people, whether that is with the Old Testament between God and Israel or in the New Testament between Jesus Christ and his bride, the church, which we read about in Ephesians chapter 5. And the covenant, we looked at it as a promise of commitment not an exhortation of present love. That's why the church's historic marriage covenant does not have love as its foundation. Rather, it has the promise of fidelity or faithfulness as its foundation. And so the covenant can only be broken or is only permissible to be broken, as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 19 and Paul says later on in the epistles by two reasons, one of them being adultery, the other one being Desertion. So these were the things we looked at last week. Today we'll uh, c- complete the topic by looking at the other two points. The first point was that the appeal for biblical marriage rests on marriage as human flourish- flourishing. The next two points talk about um, sex or physical relationships as a gift of God within marriage. And then children as a blessing of God through the gospel in marriage. So let's look at um, the idea of physical relationships as a gift of God within marriage. Now in our modern society, the view of uh, physical relationships of, of sex is a utilitarian view. Basically, it's something that is similar to, you know, if you think about Pavlov's uh, hierarchy of needs, at the very bottom, there are things like food and shelter and so on. So. And, and so many people think of sex as something like that. It's like a basic need. It's something that you need to satisfy because it's like a very foundational need. And that actually, that way of thinking is not actually very modern. It actually has ancient history behind it. If you read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12 to 16, as usual, the verses will come up on screen. Paul says, this is what the Corinthian church had a problem with. They said, all things are lawful for me, but then Paul says, not all things are helpful. They say, all things are lawful for me, but Paul says, I will not be dominated by anything. Then look at what the church says, or at least some people in the church. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And then it says, Paul says, God will destroy both one and the other. Then he goes on to say, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. 
You see, the utilitarian view of sex relies on the fact that it is just like food and drink. And so the Corinthians said, if food and drink is necessary for the body, then why can't we engage in sexual immorality because it's just a necessity? And so Paul says food and drink are necessary for the body in the sense that it has to feed it. But physical relationships are not in the same category. Rather, they are something that is intrinsic to the nature of humanity. So that the body, when it dies, will be resurrected. So that what you do with your body, not what you feed it, what you do with your body counts for the resurrection. The body is not insignificant. It will be raised. The body is for service to the Lord. And sex is intrinsically tied to the body in a way that our need for food and drink is not. And as Paul says here, the physical relationship between husband and wife make explicit the one flesh nature of marriage, the joining together of husband and wife. And the Bible assumes that it flows or it proceeds from marriage. If you remember in Genesis, it says Adam knew Eve. And we know that it both entails the, the physical intimacy that they had, as well as the acknowledgement that in knowing her fully, physical relationship was a part of it. In the Bible, sex is related to love and responsibility, both of these things. And without that framework, it is illegitimate. And the Bible goes beyond most ancient literature in portraying it as a gift from God. That brings pleasure to the man and the woman who have committed to each other within the woes of marriage. And so to have physical relationship with a man or woman who is not your husband or wife is to break God's purpose and design for the sexual relationship. The clear sign of this is how covenant breaking between Israel to God in the Old Testament is portrayed as unfaithfulness, but very specifically, it is portrayed as sexual unfaithfulness. That Israel was an adulterer. Hence also why Jesus says adultery is a valid reason for divorce, because it is covenant breaking. If that is the constraint and the design that God has, that sex is a gift from God to be used within marriage, then how are we to think about it in terms of the church? Generally, this topic is not often spoken from the pulpit. But the reality is that it is spoken of quite a bit in the New Testament. So it should be a matter of focus for the church because it is a matter of focus for the Bible. What does it have to say to those who are married, those who are yet to be married, or those who have chosen singleness as a gift from God? We'll look quickly at some passages from the New Testament, from Paul's epistle specifically. First, we'll read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3 to 8. It says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Then we read 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 
verses 2 to 9. It says, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. If you sum up these two passages, you will notice a few themes. One is that most human beings have the sense of burning with passion. In summarizing the whole of the Bible, this is God-given to drive us towards marriage. See, post the fall, the idea of relationships, of coming together as a couple can be, be fraught and unappealing. But the urge to join together that is natural and given by God is a fundamental driver towards marriage. That is part of God's design. So then you might ask, then is sex the only reason to get married? And the answer to that is obviously no. But the lack of ability to control our desires without resorting to sexual immorality. And the word in the Greek is the word porneia, which covers a whole gamut of sexual immorality, whether that's premarital, immorality or extramarital or homosexual activity or it's general sexual immorality. And so the, the, the lack of the ability to control our desires without resorting to immorality should be a driver to get married. That is a pattern that is advocated in the Bible. So then another theme is this concept of conjugal rights. Now that's not a term that we hear of often. Interestingly enough, it's a term you hear of in some cases in in imprisonment, that some men and women who are imprisoned have been given conjugal rights, which means that their husband or wife can visit them periodically. But what is the Bible saying? The Bible is not shying away from the fact that both men and women are equal in their desire for physical intimacy. You don't understand how radical it is at the time that the Bible was written to assert that the wife and the husband have equal rights when it comes to this. And it's not just the man taking care of himself. You see, in the Greek culture that this uh, letter is written in that context, they believe that within marriage, physical relationships was to have children. And outside of marriage, physical relationships was to have pleasure. That's how they justified it. That's where the whole concept of mistresses and, and, and you know, things of that nature come from. So Paul says, no, that's not it. Paul says both the husband and wife have equal rights. And Paul says, do not deprive yourself, but accept the gift of physical intimacy and offer it to each other within the confines of marriage. Many issues with marriages start because the couples do not use what is God-given as a gift to stay intimate. And if there are other problems in the marriage, certainly the stark nature of physical intimacy is there to drive us towards reconciliation. 
and the betterment of our marriage relationships, whether that be issues of communication or competition or disillusionment. And certainly, neglect of the conjugal rights when it's a possibility is an issue that couples should be careful to avoid outside, obviously, of physical reasons or health reasons. The Bible also assumes that we are not robots when it comes to desires. It says that if it is not getting satisfied within the bounds of marriage for a couple who is married, it is highly probable that it is getting satisfied elsewhere. Hence, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 28, that whoever looks at a woman with lust has committed adultery. Now, when you think about that, you can say, oh, that's just Jesus lifting up the, the, uh, the notion of adultery to make it uh, cover a whole gamut. Now, that certainly is true. But really what Jesus is saying is that sexual intimacy is not merely confined to the physical, but to the emotional and the mental. So that your husband or your wife is the only person who deserves the intimacy of your eyes and your minds and you defraud them and another person unwillingly when your eyes become intimate with another person. Whether that's through pornography or, or other means or if your mind fantasizes about another person. The nature of what God given encompasses all of these things. So that what Jesus says makes sense in today's world. It makes more sense than he probably did at that time. So then the last theme you see here and one that I want to bring up is what is singleness? Why do we call singleness a gift? Is it the gift of being a loner? Now some people say, you know, uh, I have a gift, and my gift is that I don't actually desire extended uh, uh, relationships with people. Trust me, a lot of men have that spiritual gift. We have the spiritual gift of being loners, and many of us are married. So the gift is not whether you desire relationship. You see, what well, the Bible is very careful. Unlike today, where our concept of singleness is tied to being a state of relational unattachment. That's why you have the relationship status. The Bible's concept of singleness is tied to celibacy, which is the state of abstaining from sexual relationships. You note that here in the passages we read in Paul, as well as when Jesus uh, says in Matthew chapter 19, he refers to those who are single as eunuchs, not to put them down, but rather to say that the concept is tied to the fact that they have foregone sexual intimacy. That is the gift. So for all Christians, even within marriage, this is a calling for a season. When you have, you know, when you're in that age uh, range where that is a possibility, there's a gift that is given, sometimes for a season. But for some Christians, it can be a calling for life. And it is a difficult calling because it involves the lack of, uh, of sexual attachment and sexual immorality. But it is not an impossible uh, calling because we know both Jesus and Paul were celibate. Certainly such a gift comes alongside, as Paul says, 
later on with a gift to serve the church and the kingdom of God in ways that the married couple cannot. This is what one commentator has to say about why Christianity, above all other religions, prioritizes the status and the respect that is given to single people. It's what he says. The early church's legitimation of singleness as a form of life symbolized the necessity of the church to grow through witness and conversion. Singleness was legitimate not because sex was thought to be a questionable activity, but because the mission of the church was such that the church required those who were capable of complete service to the kingdom. So not service to your career or fear of relational intimacy or the concept of commitment, but rather the gift of celibacy comes with the gift or assumes that there's the gift of service to the kingdom. So certainly the biblical mandate for marriage includes the idea of sex as a gift, both to drive us towards marriage and to fight for our marriages to flourish. And we should not neglect God's teaching in this matter. The last aspect of biblical marriage is of children as gospel blessing. And we live in, again, in a society in which children are seen as a hindrance to fulfillment and flourishing, even in Christian context. And the idea of having children as a social expectation is what many of us would have an issue with, right? No, no one wants to be in that position where you're married and then, you know, as we say, some auntie or someone comes and says so. The Bible, however, assumes that marriages lead to children in cases where it is possible. Again, where there are health reasons or other reasons, it's talking about what the apologetic approach is to talk about what is normative which means what happens most of the time. And so the blessing to be fruitful and multiply implies that human beings are to have children. Now you might ask, the blessing to multiply was given to all animals, but what is unique, so what is unique about human beings? One, in creation, human beings were given the mandate to, to have dominion over the world. That means they were created in the image of God, so they were given a specific responsibility to steward creation. And part of that mandate was the blessing to be fruitful and multiply. And secondly, this mandate is tied to the fall and to the gospel promise. The fear that Adam and Eve had is that God would abandon them to their devices and end their line, that human beings would go extinct. Instead, though childbearing as a result of the fall is done through pain, the gospel promise in Genesis chapter 3 is to come through the seed of Eve, that is her children. And that is a promise which says that God has not abandoned the human race, but rather that the human race would endure. So when Eve is pregnant with Cain in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 1, she says, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. She's saying that God has not abandoned us. So the gospel promises carried through the Bible. When there was the flood and Noah comes out, one of the first things that is given to them again is the blessing to be fruitful and multiply. 
when Sarah and Isaac await for a long time for the promised child, then God gives them Isaac. And so on through the ages where the gospel promise is tied to the bearing of children, ultimately finding fulfillment in the birth of Jesus Christ as a baby. And so in many places in the Bible, it says children are a gift from the Lord. We know the passage in Psalm 127, verse 3 to 5, it says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward like arrows in the hand of a warrior, are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. And certainly the blessing of Genesis chapter 1 does not take hold in every life. Because childlessness is a reality post the fall. But certainly the blessing is broad enough for it to be assumed that the end result of marriage is children. And so the question before Christians is, does the blessing to be fruitful and multiply still hold as a matter of moral conviction? Or is it just individual choice? Which is what society says. Let me just briefly go through a few reasons why children are still a blessing and a gift from God and why the decision to have or have not have children is a, is a moral decision. It's a matter of moral conviction. The first is that the New Testament, even after the birth of Jesus Christ, assumes that it continues the Old Testament concept that children are a blessing from God. It is a result of marriage, as we read in many passages. And you have to notice that the reading that we read last week in Matthew chapter 19, the teaching of marriage, does anyone remember what immediately comes after Jesus talks about marriage? He says, let the little children come to me. The concept of marriage, family, and children go together, not just in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament. So that's one reason. Secondly, the mode of childbearing is through sexual intimacy. Now sex has both, by God's design, it has both the aspect of pleasure and procreation. That is naturally speaking, physical relationships between a husband and wife will lead to children. And given that sex is contained within marriage, that means marriage leads to children. And we talked about how sex is related to love and responsibility and certainly one aspect of that love and responsibility comes in the care of children. Now, without getting into the question of contraception and how many should we have and when and so on, the idea that married couples can be physically intimate and decide to never have children, we have to understand that is tied to technology. And when I say technology, the first thing you think of is like cell phones and robots. Now, I'm not talking about that, I'm talking about a man-made intrusion into what, that what is natural. That means the ability to be physically intimate and never have children is a frustration, is an artificial frustration of the procreational purpose of sex. And if we are frustrating what is by design from God, then the moral question is, do we have the right to do so? And certainly, morally, ethically, the question becomes then, is there a permission given for people who are able to have children to not have children in the Bible and the New Testament? And the answer to that is yes. But that means you have to be celibate. You have to be single if you read all the New Testament passages. 
all the household passages about family assumes that marriage leads to children. For example, without going too much into what this uh, verse actually uh, is in context about, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15 talks about the woman, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and wholeness with self-control. The, the idea that you can be physically intimate and not have children is foreign to the Bible. Then we can ask, could we justify it by some other reason? One reason many people cite is that the blessing in the Old Testament to be fruitful and multiply is not a commandment. This is true. This is linguistically, grammatically, the it is a blessing. So it's not a commandment. But the problem with that is that we are now reading too much into the difference between what is a commandment and what is a blessing. For example, there is a command to be holy. It's a command. God says, be holy. So you could say then, well, one way to be holy is to never be physically intimate, right? So then you avoid the possibility that you will be unholy by engaging in physical relationships. But that is not also proper because the Bible clearly assumes that the blessing of physical intimacy does not contradict the commandment to be holy. And then would you denying your conjugal rights to your wife or husband then just become a question of, well, I don't desire this blessing. Or does it become a question of moral conviction? And so similarly, if you read too much into the notion that blessing is not commandment and commandment is not blessing, you're missing the point. Blessings means that God has to intervene. Whereas commandments is a dictate that we have, we are accountable for. And if you don't desire that blessing, what else could be the reasons? One reason I've heard is that children, and this is you know, something I've read and something I've, I've uh, heard uh, from many people, is that children will be sinners and get judged by God. I call this the Cain problem. But you notice that, that uh, Eve said, what is Cain? Cain is a man that I got with help from the Lord. Can there be a situation where children could stand in the way of a couple's spiritual objectives? That means, could there be a situation where, let's say, a couple decides, we want to live for the Lord, maybe by doing ministry, or maybe by going on the mission field. And so the way to do it is to not have children, so we can devote ourselves. This is a Christian version of the secular argument that children are a hindrance to achievement. But then again, you would have to justify why you should just not be celibate and work for the Lord. If your calling is to the mission field or is to the ministry, why then do you assume that then you have to get married and make it work as opposed to being single and make it work? Or why do we assume then that God's purpose of spiritual maturity or blessing does not have children within it? You would be making a case for what the Bible assumes without actually having a clear commandment or a mandate in the Bible to do so. And one thing to think about children, this is what a writer called Christopher Ash says, while we may choose to have a child, Ultimately, conception, birth, and the unique characteristics of a particular child are exclusively in the hands of God. 
As parents, we have the challenge and the honor of loving the little stranger that God has given us, of extending godly hospitality to him or her. Someone has commended that the only home it is safe to be born into is a hospitable home that welcomes outsiders into its circle. Children challenge our self-centeredness and do us good. What he's saying is that the process of spiritual maturing for most people involves the process of bringing up children in the fear of God. And if we are not able to extend hospitality to children, how do we assume then that we can extend hospitality to other strangers with the level of self-sacrifice and self-denial that it actually requires for the sake of the kingdom? What about environmental reasons? Are we overpopulating the world? And then is there a need to not have children? Now, without getting too much into the theory, you know, this is, uh, this is a theory called, uh, by, by an economist called Malthus. It's called the Malthusian theory of, of overpopulation. He believed in like the 1800s that there would come a point where there would be too many people and there would be competition for food and people would start dying off because of that. This theory is actually no longer valid because it has been discredited. Do you know that, uh, this is true for the US, certainly, that the United States exports 25% of its food production. That means if it chooses not to export 25% of its food production, it can support up to twice the population that it already has. So this theory is discredited, but unfortunately it somehow still holds in, in popular imagination. If you read economics, you, most economists believe that the solution to the problem, let's say, of climate change or of other similar problems is children. That's why there's the concept of replacement level in societies. Does anyone know what replacement level means? Replacement level is the number of children and a woman should have over her lifetime in order for society to continue itself. And that generally tends to be somewhere like 2.58. Think we can split the difference of a half a child between like two, three couples. But, but the reality is that societies, especially advanced societies, are not meeting the replacement level, which is why they invite people from other countries to come in. We call it immigration. And look at the people that they want to immigrate. They want young people, married people with children. That's the sweet spot. So when we say that children are a problem for the world, what happens in society disproves it completely. We can conserve resources, we should conserve resources as stewards of God's creation. But the problems that we have solved so far have come from human ingenuity that God has given. So that if someone has the option to drive an electric car or take a sailboat that is powered by solar electricity instead of a plane halfway through the world, that comes as a result of human ingenuity. And the person or the people who came up with that were someone's children. That's why it's not a valid reason, because it flies against 
what society itself, like I'm not even talking about the Bible, I'm talking about what society itself believes. And our policies are tailored towards people getting married and having children. Lastly, you should ask yourself, or we should all ask, when is a choice a moral choice? Or more specifically, when is it a morally neutral choice? Because the only way that anyone can have individual choice and say, I can choose one way and somebody else could choose the other way is if those choices are morally neutral. When is it a morally neutral choice? It is when, if you assume that everyone else makes the same choice that you do, is it good or bad? If everyone else makes the same choice that you do, is it good or bad? If it is bad, it's not a morally neutral choice. If it is good, then it's a morally good choice. If all people decided to stop having children, would that be good or bad for society? We fail to understand that in God's design, there's the concept of generations. Older generations to teach younger generations. Younger generations to take care of older generations. That is true in society. That is true in the church. God says you should teach. You know, I will proclaim my grace and mercy to a generation yet unborn. And God says he shall not be put to shame, those who have children. Children are the future, but more than that, they represent the furtherment of society and of community and the church. Who are we going to save if we stop having children? Most of all, they tie us back to God's gospel promise in the garden and God's gospel fulfillment in Christ, whereby we have become whom? Children of God. So the opportunity to testify to that gospel promise, one of God's given ways to us, is through the blessing of children, if it is possible, physically and for health reasons within marriage. I like what a commentator says about you know, the psalm passage. He says, it is not untypical of God's gifts that first they are liabilities, or at least responsibilities, before they become obvious assets. The greater their promise, the more likely that these sons and daughters will be a handful before they are equivocal. He's saying that we, we assume that blessing means you don't have to fight for it, that you won't struggle through. But God's blessing does not operate in the way we think it should operate. And so we bring it back to singlehood. One of the key things in the New Testament is how the, the importance of children is so vital that even single people are called to have children. How is that so? If you read Mark chapter 10, verse 29 to 30, Jesus said, truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. You know, Paul says that he says to the Corinthian church, I am your father. He says to Timothy, 
I relate to you as a father would relate to his son. In Romans chapter 16, verse 13, he says this about a particular woman. It says, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. See, the concept of children is so important that even those who are physically not able to have children still have the mandate to give birth and take care of spiritual children for the furtherment of the kingdom. And maybe our children have grown and they have left. Then we have the mandate to adopt spiritual children. That's how the church grows. But certainly, that involves physical children as well. That for the couples who are able to do so, physical children is God's blessing in their life. It's God's blessing towards church, towards the church. It's God's blessing towards society. What, what a writer says is this. For Christians do not place their hope in their children, but rather their children are a sign of their hope in spite of the considerable evidence to the contrary that God has not abandoned this world. Because we have confidence in God, we find the confidence in ourselves to bring new life into this world, even though we cannot be assured that our children will share our mission, for they too must be converted if they are to be followers of the same way that we are. So marriage is a creation institution of God given to satisfy the most fundamental of our longing for social and relational intimacy. And some do not have the gift, or some uh, have the gift of not desiring that and everything that entails, but that is not true for most people. So marriage is a covenant that is a symbol of the faithfulness of God to his people, and that lifelong commitment to one man or one woman is God's commandment to those who are married. And within marriage, there is the gift of sexual relationships that exemplifies our relational intimacy and drives us towards covenantal faithfulness. And the result of that relationship in the normal course of life is the gift of children. All children, whether they are unplanned or planned, and the challenges that they bring is a gift from God. The ch Christian must have the conviction to testify to the goodness of God's design and advocate for the goodness of children. Because biblical marriage is a joyous thing, but it's a challenging thing. But it is what can tie us back to the goodness of God when he created us. The goodness of God in not abandoning us to extinction through the promise of children and points to the mystery of God's love for us. You know, one day in the past, he said God presented Eve to Adam. So also one day in the future, God will present the church who are his children as a bride to Jesus Christ at a marriage supper at the end of the ages. That is the beauty and the hope to which biblical marriage points towards. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you a lot for your word, which is uh, so clear and so stark, even when we, um, we are not able to understand it. We thank you a lot that it lays out for us in clear terms uh, your blessings and your expectations for us as human beings, specifically within the context of marriage and singlehood and everything else that entails. We are thankful a lot that you have given us clear markers 
that you have given us um, opportunities uh, both to enjoy your good gifts and also to resist temptations when they arise through your Holy Spirit that lives within us, O Lord. So we pray that as a community, as individuals, as families, we can all attest to this concept, to the goodness of uh, the marriage covenant, to the goodness of biblical marriage, in, in the faithfulness that it involves between man and woman, in the, in the um, self-sacrifice it, it has in, in uh, responding to and satisfying the desires of each other, and mostly a lot also in the conviction that the result of those marriages will be children who are a gospel blessing that points back to the blessing in the garden after the fall and also the blessing of what is to come when one day we as children of God, as part of the bride of Christ, will be presented to our Lord and Savior in a marriage supper. So we thank you a lot for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for the many couples who are godly testimonies in our lives. We thank you for our single uh, people, whether in, in whatever stages of life, we thank you that you have granted them the grace and the gift to be in that situation. And may we all work towards advancing your kingdom through the means that you have given us. And we pray a lot that you'll guide us and guide us. In the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we ask. Amen.